0: that's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. ETW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to More Outdoors on News Talk 560K L V I. This is Chester Moore. And on the phone right now, I have my good friend Shane Bonneau. Shane is the Coastal Advocacy Director of the Coastal Conservation Association, CCA. And I met him work when he worked at Sea Center, Texas, down in Lake Jackson. So, um hey, Chester, thanks. Glad to be here and excited to talk to you about some uh, speckled trout. Our good friends, the speckled trout, and uh, no fish probably altogether has as much passion behind it on the Gulf Coast. And there's kind of an allure of those really big fish, you know. So it's it's a neat fish. I wanted to talk to someone who's advocated for their conservation, but also has Worked like at a hatchery where they've done, you know, broodstock programs and things like that. And uh, before we get there, let's talk about your kind of first brush with a speckled trout. Do you you remember your first trout you ever caught?
2: I I think I know where I caught it. I don't remember specifically, but more than likely it was... uh, in, in Rockport, we we take a lot of family vacations as a young child to Rockport, mm-hmm. and we'd get a house, and we'd go fishing in Aransas Bay, and I would suspect that that was my, my first shot there in the canals near Key Allegro, uh, catching a small, dinky, speckled trout, but it didn't matter, because it was a cool-looking fish, a beautiful fish, and there's not much else uh, like it, So yeah, I kinda I have a similar memory.
1: Yeah, it's- I kinda have a similar memory I shared with Pat Murray on the first episode where I was reading so much outdoor life, field and stream and all that, like five and six years old, I was already reading pretty well and I'd see these rainbow trout and these brook trout and all this stuff. And I knew about specs, but really spec populations were way down in the early eighties, late seventies. because um, there was netting on Sabine Lake where I lived, you know, and uh Yeah. And at that time we didn't have a boat, we got a boat a couple of years later and Bank fishing, we didn't catch a lot of those, but I caught my first one, and I'm like, man, that I thought that was awesome because I, I knew it was different than like a brook trout or a rainbow trout, but it had that beautiful similarity, that just beautiful look, that sheen that's on them when you first catch them, and wasn't a big trout, but it was a it was fun, you know, it meant something to me, and of course trout have meant a lot to many of us. Along the Gulf Coast, and one of the things I want to kind of break down here is um, like kind of like the life cycle of a speckled trout. You know what a trout goes through, and so you worked at a hatchery, you saw like the very beginning life cycle. Can you talk a little bit about like the spawning of trout and kind of what happens in those first few weeks or months of life?
2: Sure, absolutely. So trout in in, in their natural environment will spawn, and as the water temperatures warm up in the in the spring and so that's why when you're when you're fishing in the winter winter time and into the spring season you'll notice that those females are real fat and heavy well that's that's because they haven't spawned out yet and they're building up their reserves and they have a lot of a lot of eggs at that at that time they spawn in in the spring and then they'll they're serial spawners so they'll continue to spawn throughout the summer and certainly in a little bit lighter doses than they do during their initial spawns in the springtime and then again in the fall you'll typically see a, a large production of of, of taking place so after the after the eggs are released they're fertilized in the water column by the males and then it'll take around 23 to 24 25 hours for those eggs to hatch out the eggs are buoyant so they float near the water surface and then they'll hatch and you will get a, after when they hatch, you have your larvae and your larvae have a yolk sac that they'll feed off of for a period of about another two days, mm-hmm. depending on the water temperature. If it's, if it's a little bit colder, that, that time period will be longer. If it's warmer, they'll consume that yolk sac a little bit quicker. But they need that time period to develop their eyes and their mouth. Mm-hmm. those are those are the two key components of being able to feed on something and, and then of course their fins so after they've consumed their yolk sac they have, they'll have their pelvic fins developed partially developed they'll have their eyes developed so they can see and then of course their mouth uh, parts have been developed and so then they start they start hunting they start looking for prey and they typically start off on live zooplankton so small nearly or almost microscopic uh, little critters rotifers Mm -hmm. copepods uh, they could feed off of oyster larvae they could feed off of shrimp larvae i mean anything that that they can fit into their mouth that looks tasty they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna try to eat it gotcha they're really they're really not super 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 picky that as they as they develop through their through their larval stages, um, they, they complete their fin development. They'll actually start to get some pigmentation and, and even develop some spots. And so it takes about a month for them to get to an inch and a half to two inches. Okay. Now that growth is variable among, uh, you know, depends on environmental conditions. It's variable among individuals and so sometimes when the conditions are right in in just a month month and a half time you can get a spotted sea trout go from an egg all the way to a three almost four inch fish their growth can be quite remarkable if everything is is just perfect
1: well that's interesting right? you are thinking about yeah. like finally they get to the stage that it looked like a
2: trout Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, at at about one inch, they actually look like a trout. Mm-hmm. They have they have some spots. Mm-hmm. They have you can even start to see a little bit of yellow in the mouth, um, and and they're just they're just a tiny replication of what what that you know that big female looks like, and and yeah, then they're you know they they just continue to grow depending on food availability and and water temperature, but on average you could say you could say an inch and a half uh, a month would be about their average growth rate until they start putting energy into developing gonads you know putting energy into eggs or energy into uh gonad development
1: you know it's really interesting thinking about that larval stage and a question i have right here we we know about conserving through bag limits size limits you know the fish that we harvest and catch you know that size fish but where do these little trout, are they habitat-specific, or um, are there certain areas that are really crucial for them in the bay systems?
2: Yeah, the most, the most critical part of, of our bay systems for a nursery area, for trout and for many other species, it's that fringe habitat along the shoreline. Yeah, So when you have that mix of, of, of structure with oyster beds, seagrass, sand flat, uh, marsh, all of that mixed in. That is, that is, you know, you're 100 to 200 yards from the bank out into the bay. That's the most critical zone. And that's mm-hmm. where the, these guys are, are developing and, and growing up. And as they get older, of course, they can recruit to other habitat types, deeper water, oyster, oyster reefs and deeper water. You know, other structures, whether it be man-made or, or natural, they'll, they can shift out to those habitat types. But, you know, during the first few months of their life, it, everything happens right there along the shoreline.
1: Now, you mentioned the growth rate up to maybe an inch and a half a month, something like that, till they start getting this sexual development part of their lives going on. But, like, where would we say a trout is in a year? Let's say a female trout in a year, average.
2: Right around, you know, and again, age, aging growth is highly variable. Mm-hmm. So you could mm-hmm. have, you could have one female be getting close to 17 inches her first year and you have another that's more around 11 yeah. or 12 inches. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on average, you could say 14, 15 inches. And that's why parks and wildlife, I don't mean to shift the management too soon, but that's why the minimal size is set at 15 inches because In theory, it gives that female um, one season, hopefully, to spawn Spawn. before she is removed from the fishery. Yeah,
1: and and that makes sense. And I think that's kind of a standard bearer for coastal fisheries management, um, having the ability to allow a fish to spawn at least once. Um, and so you got that fish, it might be 12 to 17 inches, depending on maybe where it's caught, maybe where the, the conditions of the years it grew, grew up, those kind of things. Um, so let's say that fish, that big female is five years old. What kind of potential size can we have at five?
2: Oh, at five, you're looking 25 inches, mm-hmm. approximately. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they these fish live up to eight to 10 years. It's yeah. It's it's normal to see a fish to be eight or nine, sometimes ten years, and of course you you know their 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 max growth is you know thirty inches plus. Um, it just it takes a lot for a fish to get to that size and of course to, to that age.
1: When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Shane Benoit from CCA. Welcome back to More Outdoors on News Talk Five Sixty KLVI. Continuing our conversation with Shane Benoit of CCA. And that makes sense, and I think that's kind of a standard bearer for coastal fisheries management, um, having the ability to allow a fish to spawn at least once. Um, And so you got that fish, it might be 12 to 17 inches, depending on maybe where it's caught, maybe where the the conditions of the years it grew grew up, those kind of things. Um, So let's say that fish, that big female is five years old. What kind of potential size can we have at five? Oh, at five,
2: you're looking 25 inches. Mm-hmm. approximately mm-hmm. and you know they these fish live up to eight to ten years yeah it's it's, it's it's normal to see a fish to be eight or nine sometimes ten years and of course you you know their 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 max growth is you know 30 inches plus um it just it takes up a lot for a fish to get to that size and of course to, to that age but at around at around five years, that fish should be at least twenty three inches, and could be you know certainly much much uh, larger than that.
1: Yeah, it's just a fascinating seeing the growth track. We know that flounder probably six to seven years, maybe life cycle. These trout maybe nine to ten in a good year. Redfish much older, that kind of stuff. But I think this plays a lot into what we're doing for you. Think about a deer hunter. You want to shoot a deer if you're managing your property of a certain age and those kind of things. And um, you know, seeing these fish be able to get to that size with this potential for them to be big is really what the fisherman's after. I mean, of course, we want to go out and catch fish. and But the guy who's after that really big fish, and I think it helps to understand what it takes for them to get to that size.
2: Yeah, it's, it's quite remarkable. First of all, it's it's really quite remarkable that when when you work in a hatchery environment, and you see what it takes just to get a fish to to uh, to hatch, yeah. and then to to go through the uh, larval process, and then to grow and develop into a, a juvenile. I mean, all those little steps are are little tiny miracles, and and you know it's just a wonder, and I, I sometimes am in awe of how these fish to get to as large as they as they get to and and it, it's uh, it's been a pleasure to to be able to work with them hands-on mm-hmm. and see it a hatchery setting and then go out into the wild in the outdoors and, and catch them and and uh just have a deep appreciation for what it took to get that fish to that size now, uh, in terms of uh, speckled
1: trout and the spawning scenario and the stocking, Texas is, of course, the leader on this. And we we know redfish have been produced in captivity for many, about 40 years now plus, but there are not nearly as many trout released as there are redfish released. What's the reason for that?
2: Well, there the the main reason is, is just management priorities. Yeah. So the, the hatchery program started based on the stock enhancement of red drum and, and that as the red drum recovered you started to see uh some shift in priorities mm-hmm. and, and one of those shifts was to, to do uh, increased spotted sea trout production mm-hmm. now on an individual basis comparing a red drum female to a, a speckled trout female mm-hmm. those spawning females are are quite different in size yeah so that red drum female is able to produce uh, quite a few more eggs than that than that trout female is, but um, you can put more trout into a tank, so you can than you can red drum. So you can you can still get quite a number of eggs from from a, from a single spawn. Right now, I think that the stocking quota for speckled trout on the entire Texas coast is close to 10 million fish. Ten million fingerlings put out from Sabine Lake all the way down to Lower Laguna Madre, and that's a big increase from what I
1: remember when I first got on the radar of the trout program in the late '90s. Um, It wasn't in the ten million category, you know. So no, you're right, you're right, you're right.
2: And and as we as we look as 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 pressure on the fishery increased, Mm -hmm. Parks and Wildlife decreased the bag limit. Uh, starting with the lower Laguna Madre, and and now all the way up through the upper coast, is, mm-hmm. you know they've decreased uh, most recently from 10 to five, and, and along with that came a a push to increase the hatchery production of, of spotted sea trout. So yeah, they're at they're at around 10 million is their quota annually for speckled trout each year.
1: Now, I, something interesting that really happened when I got involved, because I was asked uh, to help catch some brood stock early on with some different people like my friend Skip James, local CCA chapter, you know, bring they you guys would bring a truck over at the time and we would help catch trout for the brood stock. It was because they were wanting to limit trout stocked in the Sabine area, for example, or Galveston and have them actually caught from the same base system. Uh, as, do you know if that's still in practice and what is the reason for that?
2: Yes, that actually is still in practice, mm-hmm. and which which adds a little bit of complexity from a management standpoint mm-hmm. for the hatchery to keep these fish separate. Yeah. Uh, however, it's uh, it's it's necessary because that there has been research, some of the, you know, conducted by UTMSI. Joan Holt was mm-hmm. uh, one of the principal uh, scientists behind this when they did this in the early two thousands. But there are some differences in are speckled trout from bay system to bay system. Now, Mm -hmm. it may not be as specific. You may not see a lot of differences between Sabine Lake and Galveston, but Parks and Wildlife likes to err on the side of caution. Sure. There certainly are differences between the Lower Laguna Madre stock and the Sabine Lake stock or the -hmm. the Mm -hmm. Galveston stock and the the Lower Laguna stock. So, the hatcheries will collect brood stock, as you mentioned, from a specific bay and keep them separate from other base systems and when those fish spawn their their fingerlings end up going right back into the base system where the parents came from so um yeah it's it's a practice and the we don't parks and wildlife doesn't want to do anything to that's not natural to what's actually happening in the field or Mm -hmm. happening in the wild Mm -hmm. so um, I think it's a good practice, and that's one that will likely continue.
1: It's interesting to me because of those slight genetic, var- you know, variances in, in different animals. I mean, you can see it even in white-tailed deer. There's sub people don't know there's subspecies of white-tailed deer. And uh, I got to photograph the Seminole deer in 2019 and done in Lower Florida, and that's the closest deer down there to the key deer, which is like 50 pounds at adulthood. And The Seminoles are probably yeah, those- 60 or 70 pounds. They're still a white-tailed deer. And they would breed Uh with the white-tailed deer from South Texas, but there are differences in their habitats. Um, Does some of that habitat, you think, limit, let's say, that trophy production? I mean, are there limiting factors because of habitat differences and maybe even growing seasons because of maybe warmer waters down in Lower Laguna Madre versus the Upper Coast?
2: I think certainly, yes. I mean, habitat influences everything from the fish to survivability to – Growth to to weight to length, yes. Now, which space system has the best habitat for the for the you know the largest fish? You know that's <laughs> that's probably a whole nother podcast. Sure. It's certainly <laughs> open for a lot of debate. It's a can and, of worms <laughs> uh, that that'll never get settled. No, but his, historically speaking, you have a, a lot of big fish that have come out of uh, Baffin Bay. Serpulid reefs were still alive. There was something about that base system in the 50s through the 70s that, when, you know, when recreational fishing down there became really popular, um, it had a lot of very large cycle trout. Um, you know, all, all base systems have the ability to, to produce, you know, numerous 30 plus, 30 inch plus plus fish. Mm -hmm. Uh, parks and wildlife sees it in their in their gill net and there are monsters out there in our bay system and it's not just in east matagorda or just Mm -hmm. in baffin bay i mean every bay system has the ability to produce with our current
0: according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: The environment and our current habitat and our current fisheries management, every basis system has the ability to, to produce those fish. And uh, Parks and we will see them in their gill net, so they're, they're, they're out there.
1: You know it's interesting because the record trout come from the s- southern coast of Texas. You know the the Jim Wallace fish in '96, and then we had the uh, the the record f- current record fish caught by Bud Rowland in the early 2000s. showing in a little bit further southern influence, some of those maximum size fish. But like you said, there are, if you look at even Texas Parks and Wildlife water body records, there are um, definitely. Records that are really impressive in, in pretty much each base system. When we come back on More Outdoors, we'll continue our conversation with Shane Benoit of CCA. Welcome back to More Outdoors on News Talk 560 KLVI. If you look at even Texas Parks and Wildlife water body records, there are um definitely records that are really impressive in, in pretty much each base system. And uh, I just think it's interesting looking at, you know, the differences between those base systems and things like that. And I'm I'm sure some of that has to do with pressure and other things like that in terms of, even if you're not catching as many big ones, it's a lot more fishing pressure, just anecdotally in any kind of fishery, more fishing pressure, fish are harder to catch.
2: Yeah. And they, you know, more fishing pressure, certainly more, more activity on the water um, that, you know, know push the fish off of a habitat type or out of an area and so that's when you start to think about our our activities you know boating our behaviors you know how we how we run up on an area that holds fish or Mm -hmm. we think that holds fish um, how much pressure we put in a certain area so all those things play lay apart and I think you know they affect the behavior of, of of the fish so we have to we have to be aware of that
1: so we're talking about you know the idea of you know parks and wildlife stocking in Texas stocking you know trout from Galveston Bay and Galveston Bay San Antonio Bay and that area all those things um, we know that redfish are definitely more migratory than speckled trout but let's talk a little bit about trout migration. It used to be a thing that all the, all the trout go out in the winter in the gulf and they come back. Well, we know that's not necessarily true. Do you know of any uh, you know recent research about trout migration and um, from what I understand trout usually are born and die within a few miles of the same location.
2: Yeah, so though typically they will stay they will stay in the bay system and, and the ones and the ones that the surf trout for the most part, run through the passes and stay close to that that mm-hmm. nearshore nearshore habitat. Um, and you're right; they do they do they local, but they they're not afraid to travel. Okay, within that area, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Sun Dr. Sun did tagging studies, and they had one trout. Um, I think it went, although it was recaptured, really close to where it was tagged. In between those two times, it had traveled like 30-something miles. Wow, that's impressive. It, his total track, you know, within mm-hmm. the base system, mm-hmm. uh, tallied up to something like 30 miles. So they move around uh, with, within their area, uh, but they're, uh, typically you won't see a fish leave a base system, travel 50 miles down the coast into another system. That's, that's, not, their, that's not their behavior.
1: Yeah, you know, there's a lot of fascinating elements about those trout that do live in the surf, and you find out, like, at the short rigs. You know, um, you know, the trout look a little different out there. I mean, I mean, I think, I'm sure it's water clarity and diet and things like that. You know, but it's just really interesting fought, about those fish. They fight trade. differently too. They do. They fight yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they got to fight a lot more current and waves than the ones in the bays do. That's, that's right. for
2: sure. Yeah, they're, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because they are they they have. A little more, little more kick to their to their fight, and certainly uh, that I think fighting those currents plays a part in it.
1: In my opinion, and this is just from talking to people over the years and fishing those areas a lot, I believe there's probably a state record somewhere in the nearshore Gulf that no one's ever caught, and no one may it may never even see a lure. You know, I mean just. I- yeah i agree you know there's a lot of fish out there and you know you think about the limited days you can even fish out there with the you know the way the it's rough a lot of times and we're in smaller boats you know usually bay boats guys out there chasing trout and uh and i've seen some big trout out there before and hung into some you know really nice trout but i do believe there are probably a state record swimming out there somewhere and hopefully the next time i pull up to a rig it'll be there but uh i have a feeling that's probably not going to happen shane
2: well, oh, you guys, you guys, uh, near Sabine Lake have some of the best near shore trout fishing, uh, that at least that I've, that I've heard of. And, you know, there's plans in the work to be putting in more of that redfish and trout type habitat, you know, within state waters, uh, off of Sabine Lake. So, well, well that's a uh, very good thing. It's a great theme. little fishery. It's a yeah.
1: very good thing because we've lost a lot of the rigs, um, you know, they pulled a lot of their rigs up. You know, and um, I'm sure some of the you know the bottom structures are still there, but you know a lot of that's gone. What was really interesting to me, um, there was one particular rig. It was just southeast of the Sabine Jetties, maybe two or three miles, and there was a boat wreck on the on the south side of it. And it seemed like the trout always want to be on the boat wreck instead of actually the rig itself. It was really weird. And we caught our bigger fish, tend to be right around that that boat wreck, you know. And uh, So that goes into, I love to have tracking devices and all that stuff, you know. O-Search needs to start tagging trout in Texas, what needs to happen. <laughs> Ping, you know, instead of That'll, following white yeah. whites, we'll follow, follow the them around. Follow the trout around, that would be awesome. And give me the oh, coordinates. Man. There I, would, you go. I would flat out cheat too. I'd follow that sucker around, till we, you know. Uh, and, and everybody's like oh my god don't be self-righteous you know you do the same thing trying to catch the big fish but uh, you know that's all fascinating and, and I think that Shane it, it, the allure of those big trout and the mysteries behind them I think that's a lot of what keeps us going out there fishing
2: it, it is there is something a little bit I, I don't know the right word for it but it's just uh, it, it's a little mystical it's a you always wonder if where that big fish is and if you're gonna catch it on this next trip. And there's a lot of guys that, I mean it's almost like a cult following of trophy mm. trout, but there's guys that, that that's all that they do is go out there I mean they're catching release guys and they go out there and, they, and they're looking for the next big fish, next big fish and that's their pursuit, that's their passion. And it's a, it's a big deal for a lot of people. So, you know, that kind of plays into where we talk about, you know, management of the fish. How do you manage a fishery that has, where uh, such a diverse group of, of, of anglers going after that fishery that all have different motives and different pursuits and different desires. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and of course, if you mention uh, trout at any public hearing, it gets really interesting out there. You know, a lot of uh, it's a very impassioned group of people. I think coastal fishermen in general are a very passionate group of people, and that's a good thing. You know that keeps a, that keeps the resource going and keeps the fishery going and the, and the fishing business going. Um, something else that I, I've been wanting to ask you about trout is, you know, we have. What's been done with largemouth bass is amazing. You know, we even have in Texas Operation World Record where they're putting only these share lunker size 13 pounder better largemouth bass in certain lakes and stocking. And is there potential for that with speckled trout? Um, Have we gotten to a point where we can say, hey, we're going to really pursue bigger fish for the hatchery or are there limiting factors?
2: Well, you could. you could develop a breeding program Mm -hmm. and and you know as part of your breeding program you would take fish and only select the offspring that grew the largest Mm -hmm. and then breed them Mm -hmm. and then take their offspring and only breed the largest and again go through a couple of generations where you're selecting for that trait yeah but that goes against everything that that we're trying to do in our hatchery system in as far as keeping everything natural collecting fish from the wild mm-hmm. putting their offspring straight back into into our bay systems without selecting for any specific traits. so uh but, but yeah certainly you could do that it would you would have to change sort of the the management philosophy that that we that we currently have for the species yeah, or for any any of our hatchery
1: species. Yeah, it's just it's really interesting to contemplate that and compare that you know to the bass world versus this. When we come back on more outdoors, we'll wrap up our fascinating conversation on speckled trout. Welcome back to more outdoors on News Talk Five Sixty KLVI, concluding our conversation about speckled trout. I've been in areas where I fished and I caught like seven or eight males right in a row, and. That from what I've read, that's probably a spawning aggregation. Don't these guys gather together and kind of try to draw females in?
2: Yeah, I don't. I don't know the behavior of yeah. their their spawning. I do know that that males certainly males congregate, and they showed this in East Matagorda's research that mm-hmm. was conducted out of uh, lab. Uh, Bill Balboa, who's I think the mutual friend, he was yep. just, he, he did some of this research and in their in those oyster reefs in open bay water, away from that shoreline, that fringe habitat that we spoke about earlier, mm-hmm. they saw a large concentration of male trout. Now close to the shoreline, they saw about fifty fifty male to female ratio. But mm-hmm. often deeper water on the oyster reefs, it was a much higher percentage of of male trout and so the reasoning for that it could could be spawning aggregates of males could be that they don't want to get eaten by female and <laughs> they're pushed off of those Black widow shorelines yeah right <laughs> so uh, but no they they uh yeah they certainly do they certainly do drum to encourage the females to release their eggs and and there's been some studies conducted out of utmsi where they they through uh, acoustics you know monitor that drumming and and that's when when I spoke of fish spawning throughout the summertime you know they've proven that to be to be true even even during hurricanes in the summertime uh, they still had fish uh, spawning uh, near near Port Aransas there so no, that's it's
1: interesting stuff you know and uh, something else that's kind of the, to wrap up what we're talking about with trout here lead a little bit into management at the end here, but is the diet of trout, you know, so we know that uh, typically when trout start getting a little bigger, they will maybe target more larger fin fish instead of maybe as many shrimp or smaller things like that. Um, uh, so can you talk a little bit about diet of the, maybe the bigger trout what's been found that you know of in studies and what the bigger trout tend to be known to eat?
2: Well, they like i mentioned they'll they'll eat anything that that fits in their mouth but certainly they they prefer they prefer larger thin fish i mean they'll eat another trout they'll eat mullet they certainly uh, pinfish and croaker Mm -hmm. um it's almost all fair fair game Mm -hmm. they uh they they don't discriminate when it when it when it comes to prey but you you know it all just depends on what's more prevalent in the bay system at the time. That's why, you know, you know, croaker are popular in the summertime because that's the that's one of the more dominant thin fish that yeah. the that that's available to the trout. And then it later in the fall, and the winter moves moves to thin fish. and you know you can almost you can catch them on mullet just about any any time of the year. The go biggest it.
1: trout I've ever seen inland out of the Gulf was on the end of my dad's rod in 1996 when I was in college on the Mesquite Point, the reef at Mesquite Point. and my we had been Listen. flounder fishing, and I was getting on my dad for having these little buggy whip rods, these little, <laughs> and, he, and he had one. He had some braid on it, right? And he, we had mud minnows because my dad wanted to use mud. He wasn't convinced that my, my jigs were going to work for flounder, so we had to go get mud minnows, right? <laughs> Well, I said, well, let's drift him behind the boat. We might catch trout. Well, we caught quite a few trout on the mud minnows. And the biggest trout I've ever seen in my entire life from fishing from Florida down to, you know, the very southern tip of Texas was this trout that he fought for like seven or eight minutes. And it had several passes at the boat. And It was. It just finally. It just finally. Literally, just finally. You know, broke the line. He had like. I think it was like a light braid. It was like ten pound braid. You know. It was like four pound diameter, ten pound test. You know. And uh, it finally broke the line. It was a huge trout. It went under the boat and cut the line. You know. But it was really big. But it was on a mud minnow. And then I told a guy this story one time, and uh, he would always win the salt tournament in 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 the late '90s, early 2000s in Port Arthur. And he said well, you got my secret. It's mud minnows. <laughs> and he said, he used mud minnows. I said, well, it was just an accident. We had some, so we put them out there. But it's just interesting to think about, here what other people use. And of course, like me and Pat talked about in the first episode, did a whole lore show, just all the different avenues of catching these amazing big fish. And on this series, I've got a couple of questions that I'm going to ask everybody. And I'm going to get to that. And then we're going to ask one management question. And one of these questions is, um, we ask you, you know, where you caught your first trout, if you remember that. The second is, yeah. have you ever noticed any strange harbingers of tr- the presence of big trout or presence of trout? Is there anything you notice like, oh, not? I'm talking about beyond like, you know, gulls diving. If I see this, I typically find trout. Is there anything you've ever noticed in your fishing that maybe, you know, man, if I see this, I'm going to stop and fish there?
2: Oh. I don't want to dodge the question, but I want to shift it <laughs> just a little bit. Okay, okay, okay. We can do this. <laughs> if I'm in a spot, yeah, I look, I look for a swirl, and it's 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 different. There's something about a trout swirling, and that different from another fish jumping or another fish surfacing and um and i stay on that exact spot because i i know that they're they're not going far they're on a bed or they're on a on a a, a, a seagrass to sand flat transition and i just dial in and cast and cast and cast and work that spot really really hard so That's, that's, that's how I'll answer that question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to go into yours is very similar to one of mine. Okay. And this, and Pat, I kind of thought I was crazy, I think, but uh, he said, I'll kind of go with it, you know, but the sound of a trout, a big trout slurps more, in my opinion, than a smaller trout striking the surface. So if I eat like a swirl or I hear like a slurp sound in the area, um, and I have a swirl I usually know there's a pretty good trout there you know yeah i I' I'd agree yeah
2: I'd- Without hesitation, yeah, those two things almost go hand in hand.
1: Yeah, like the swirl in oh. in the feeding, like, and, and to me, like that's an area, like, unfortunately, sometimes I'll stay two hours at a spot like that, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like, okay, I'm gonna throw my top water four hundred thousand times at every spot here, you know, but I like to ask that to help people out, and uh, you know, and share, and hopefully, when we release this, people share their stuff. Now we can be political about it and and just share certain aspects. We all have our secrets. I'm not saying
2: I'm giving <laughs> well, all my. You now. know, there's there's some value to learning on your own. <laughs> oh, and, that's and, good, and Shane. Everything hand fed to you. So. <laughs> that's
1: good, Shane. That's good. I like that. But I appreciate the answer because that kind of makes me think, you know, that's where I'm on the right track with one of mine there. But uh, just to yeah. kind of wrap things up, and we thank you so much for all your time and, and, and giving these great answers and and, and and really sharing your not only your knowledge, but your heart for the resource. But in terms of management, we've done a lot with trout in Texas. You know, it started in Lower Laguna with the five fish limb and went all the way up through the coast. Um, is there anything... Next on the horizon, I know, for example, in your position in CCA, CCA is doing a lot now, which I love with habitat. Is there anything maybe with habitat, or that we can look forward to that might be a plus for big trout and trout fishermen in the future?
2: Yeah, you'll see. You'll see not only CCA, but many of our other uh, nonprofit partners and, and government agencies really focusing on on oyster reef habitat, which is. Critical for uh, trout and many many other other fish species. So that's that's going to be a big, it continues to be a, a big push for us moving forward from from a management standpoint. You know, we're down, we're at five fish, and mm. you know, at, at this point, we're just going to be really educating anglers on uh, handling, catch and release. You know keep what you can eat, turn the rest go, and just try to encourage them to do what they can do on an individual basis to, to help the species along. That being said, the stock is doing great. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the coastal surveys by Parks and Wildlife show that the, it's stable, it's not increasing. Um, Lord, you know, with, without a without a, a fish freeze or some tragic, you know, event, uh, I think we're we're in good shape now, and we'll continue to be moving forward.
1: Thank you for listening to tonight's program. You can find me at highercalling.net and at the Chester Moore on Instagram. With lucky Land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere.